You know, there's some passages in the Old Testament that are a little scary. Would you agree? <laughs> there, there are a few scary passages. One, um, I remember that uh, God rejected the Israelites' worship because their heart wasn't in it. And sometimes, you know, after we sing, you might just give a quick prayer up to the Lord and say, Lord, I hope that my, my worship you to you this morning was acceptable because my heart was in it. You know, that's just just kind of a self-guiding thing that's that's pretty cool. Like, did you, did you, it's audience of one, did you receive my worship today? So, yeah. Uh, who's your neighbor? All right, Heather, we're going to uh, uh, move along pretty quickly here. Uh, who's my neighbor? Let's go to the first slide, Heather, after... Is Mr. Rogers your neighbor? No, he's not. No, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's not take it so seriously. Uh, how about um, who is that? Barney. Barney and no, it's not the Flintstones. <laughs> Barney and Betty. And Betty. What's the last name? Rubble. That's right. Are they the? Are they your neighbor? How about we'll go. We'll even go back a little further. How about? That is Hart Carney. Yeah, the Honeymooners. That's Ed and Trixie Norton. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, show them my. How, how about, is this your neighbor? Eddie Haskell. Do any of you have an Eddie Haskell in your life? Yeah, yeah. Mitch is like, I grew up on Okinawa. Who are these people, right? That's Eddie Haskell. You did not want him as a neighbor. How about this neighbor? That's right. Is he your neighbor? Or we all have this neighbor, don't we? Steve Urkel. And you know it's coming, okay? You know it's coming. Or is it Wilson? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, enough of the frivolities. The question that is going to be asked in our text today is, who's my neighbor, right? And we've heard it before, like I have mentioned, and a lawyer is going to test Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the word test in the original language has this nuance of, I'm testing you not to make you succeed, like when we test a helicopter before it flies, you know? or to test your knowledge, it is a test that has more of a connotation of a trap. This lawyer is trying to set up Jesus and trap him, and Jesus is going to throw the question back at the lawyer, and the lawyer is kind of embarrassed um, somewhat by asking a question he already knew the answer to, and Jesus is going to flip the script on him and trap him in his own words. And to save face and justify himself, the lawyer is going to ask, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is going to tell a story, a parable, and that parable consists of only 105 Greek words. Many people consider it the greatest short story ever written by man. And so I think uh, that kind of qualifies. I mean, every word is significant. Every word carries a punch. And Jesus is going to answer him. And it's only eight verses long, the actual story itself. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. 
we're going to turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to read about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we're going to read the whole thing through uh, down to verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Go uh, do this and you will live. So far so good? Ah, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, I don't know what does your version say. Mine says he had what? Compassion. Some may say pity. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here comes the kicker. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, you can almost see the resig or feel the resignation in this lawyer who who tried to trap Jesus and now is trapped in himself and notice he's not even going to say the Samaritan you know he's so disgusted that it is the Samaritan who's the hero and he says this the one who showed him mercy and Jesus said to him you go and do likewise now, there are some very smarter men than me that saw this, that there are three philosophies in our text about the philosophy of the way you run your life. And the first one is the robbers. And their philosophy is what yours is mine, right? You can see that philosophy. They are the stealers that live their life by stealing. Uh, redistribution of wealth legally or communism or Marxism or socialism or, oh, let me just go on a little tirade about inflation, okay? Uh, how many of you are loving our inflation? I don't hear any amens to that. The, the trouble is with inflation, of course, is that, uh, yeah, it's, we've been running at 10%, at least 10% for this year, but then we count the year before, 
and suddenly you know your hundred dollars is worth eighty. Who's in control of the inflation? Is it capitalism? No, it's not a, a, a mechanism of capitalism. It's a function of people redistributing wealth and taking from the the, the really the poor because the poor do not have any assets that are tangible that will just keep rising as the tide rises. And so it's, again, it's this philosophy that it's okay to steal from other people, legally and unlegally. That's a philosophy of life. There are just people that walk into your store or your work, and their philosophy is, I'm going to take. I'm a taker. Okay, that's a philosophy of life. The second philosophy in life is the Levite and the priest. And if you want to say it this way, what mine is mine, and I'm going to be selfish with it. What mine is mine. I don't share well. How many of you were good sharers as little kids? Probably, okay, we got one, two, three, four people that are on. Now, what happens as we grow up? Suddenly we get more, mm, this is mine, you know. And, and Jesus comes along and says, man, you got to stop holding on to that that materialistic stuff you you claim to have value and identity with and so there's a philosophy in life that says what's mine is mine and i'm not going to help anybody that has gotten themselves into trouble because obviously that guy did something wrong and god's punishing him and far be it from me to step in and thwart god's punishment uh man that sounds like hinduism right like i'm not going to help the 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 lowest caste member in in that the untouchable, and it's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. What mine is mine? That's their philosophy. And you know people that live their life by that. What mine is mine. Now, the third philosophy in life is the Samaritan. And his philosophy is, what is mine is yours. What is mine is yours. And that's really loving, isn't it? So, so you've got people that are, are thieves, you've got people that are just selfish, and then you have people in life that are just loving, right? And I know that's not the end-all, be-all of, of the philosophies of life, but you kind of see it in the text, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I can see that. Now, I want to give you some notes on the text before we get into our first kind of fill-in-the-blank. And that is, the question that is asked of Jesus is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We won't take the time to do it, but it's called the Shema. Have you ever heard that word before? And every synagogue service in Israel or outside of Israel, in case there's a synagogue someplace else in Gentile land, they would start their entire uh, service with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And uh, it differs slightly, his, his answer, because you go back to the text for a second. And he says, "Love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. He kind of threw that mind in there. And there's a reason. is because in the Hebrew, there's not a great word in Greek that describes everything. In other words, you're supposed to love God with all your heart, with, with all your, your soul, and with everything. And so he says, well, the mind and even the body. So he, the lawyer just, he, he nails it, he nails it with all your mind. Second commandment comes from Leviticus 19. And that means that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, or our, as our neighbor. <coughs> but the Jews, they interpreted that to mean that Jews should love other Jews. 
and that's where it stops. Or, as we would say in our common vernacular today, I love people like me. Right? Isn't that really egotistical? To only love people like yourself? Because what are you really saying? I love myself. Right? If you love people only like yourself, then what you're really doing is a narcissistic way of loving people because you, what you admire or love about them is actually found in you. So it's a backdoor to a self-love. It's kind of pathetic when you actually look at it. Now, this road was uh, a famous road that led down from Jerusalem, which is here, and Jericho that's down here. It's about 17 to 20 miles. Jerusalem's up high, and it was known as the Pass of Blood, kind of gory name, a moniker. Um, there's a 3,000 descent foot, a 3,000 foot descent from Jerusalem all the way down. And there's caves, there's ravines, there's all these little nooks and crannies. And it was historically known for a place to be overtaken. And that's why you traveled in groups. You traveled in groups for safety. And an easy place to be ambushed. Now... Some people have looked at this as, well, the priests and Levite, they had their reasons maybe because they were going to go up to the temple. But Jesus makes sure in the text that they have already done their service in Jerusalem because the parable says they are going down. And they're not traveling in a pack. They're traveling by themselves. And so if they were to touch blood or perhaps the man was dead, and they touched him, they would be ceremonially unclean. And sometimes we think that being ceremonially unclean means that somehow we've committed a sin. That's not necessarily true. You can be ceremonially unclean, and then you would purify yourself, you would bathe, and then you'd wait a little time. Even women having a menstrual cycle would be ceremonially unclean. It didn't mean you sinned. And so it wasn't it wasn't as if they had to make this moral decision, should I help this person and in do so, I am actually violating God's word. No, they could have become ceremonially unclean and then just washed, waited a few days, and they would have been found, fined. Now, the Samaritan, and many of us know the story of the Samaritans, they were the half-breeds. They were the ones that were left behind uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took many of the Jews into captivity and they didn't have enough population there and they started to intermarry with the Philistines and other people, the Canaanites and Jebusites and all of such and corrupted their form of worship to Yahweh. And so the Jews really were looked, looked down upon the Samaritans. In fact, uh, if any of you have seen The Chosen, you, you already know, or it's just been a Bible study, uh, Jews would prefer to go the long way around, twice around, to get to Jerusalem from Capernaum, where Jesus was, and not cut straight through Samaria because it would be yucky and defiling and all this other stuff. Now, this word compassion, and then we'll jump into our text a little bit more. It means a kindness or a goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. That's the key. It, there's a desire to alleviate somebody that is in a bad situation, afflicted or miserable. It is actually going forward and, and doing something about it, not just feelings, but there's action connected to this word compassion. 
So after the lawyer answers his own question in verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He gives a vertical answer, right? Love God. And then, and then he said, love my neighbor as myself. But the lawyer wants to justify himself. And out of those three philosophies, he's either a, a taker or just selfish, and he limits who he's going to love. So he, he wants to justify himself. And Jesus has one basic answer or statement on this parable. Some people look at this and, and try to find all these secret meanings out of every little aspect of the parable. But the parable has basically one, one meaning, and that is everyone's your neighbor. Everyone's your neighbor. So be merciful and, and compassionate to everyone. It, it can't be more simpler. Now, before we throw the lawyer under the bus, which we are wont to do, right? Do you ever do that? You read something in the Bible and you say, oh, I would have done that. And then pretty soon it dawns on you that you're just like them. And you're like, yeah, I would. I, I would have justified myself. I, I would have tried to somehow. Because we tend to love those people that are like us. But how well do we actually love our neighbors? Uh, better question is how well do we love everyone. Three things I want to pull out of this text, and here, here's the very first fill in the blank. Love is a lifestyle. That's the very first fill in the blank. Love is a lifestyle. Are you with me on that? It's not a duty. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. See, if love is just a duty, then there's a punch I can, uh, there's a clock I can punch when I'm off duty. Oh, I'm off duty today. Click. I don't have to love anybody. <laughs> oh, I'm back on duty. You know, click it again. I don't know if you like Bugs Bunny and all those Looney Tune cartoons, but remember Sam the Shepherd Dog that he would be chasing, uh, what was it? Uh, what was he chasing? He was guarding the sheep. He's guarding the sheep from, from Wiley Coyote, right? Yeah, and, and uh, they, they punched a clock and they'd get at it and then they'd punch the clock and go home. <laughs> I tell you what, folks, love is a lifestyle. You, cannot, you just don't turn it on and off like a switch. You're either saturated with it or you're dry. And it, love is a lifestyle. Oh, I don't want to help. I don't want to get my hands dirty. It's going to be too emotionally messy. I'm too busy. You know, there was a fascinating study done by some Princeton psychologists. They went to a seminary, catch that, they went to a seminary, they took 40 students, and they told them, you're going to go record something for prosperity uh, in, in this recording studio on campus, so get over there. What the researchers did then was they reenacted the Good Samaritan parable. They put somebody that was close by the door that needed help. Unfortunately, in a seminary at a Bible college, it was astounding how many people did not stop to help. In fact, one group of the ones that were then put in a rush, only four out of 40 stopped to help. And these are Bible college students. 
Are we guilty of it today that we get blinders on and we get so focused on our tasks that we miss everybody that's hurting around us? So love is a lifestyle. Love is a way of thinking, not just an individual act. The priests and the Levite are to help. They serve for a living. But boy, if they're off duty, good luck. But you see the good Samaritan who was completely spontaneous, quick to act, didn't have to think about it. He didn't put his interest ahead of the man that was beat. Think about it. He could have been, he could have been a trap. He could have been the stooge that was like, oh, help me, help me, to get him to stop and then be ambushed by somebody else. I'll tell you, there was a kid in my neighborhood. I, th I think he ended up going to prison. And you can kind of see why after I tell you this little story. This kid was so hard-hearted he would lay his bicycle down at a corner with a bicycle on top of him, feigning as if he had been in an accident. And cars would stop. People would get out and be running towards this child, and he'd hop up on his bike and ride off laughing. And you go, wow. Who, who could be that cold-hearted, right? And, and, and so you, you just see that this guy had that compassion to stop, even if there was a risk involved. And his interest became the interest of the other person because love is a lifestyle. It's not always convenient, is it? I say amen to that. Sometimes it, it, it costs you a little, doesn't it? It's not about just doing loving acts. And at the end of the day, I did more loving acts than I did selfish acts. You have, to, you have to get that worldly thinking out of your brain. It's just like, no, this is a lifestyle. This is a way of being others-oriented. This is a way of being emotionally involved with other people to the point that you actually care about them. Because you are a disciple of Christ. And this is Christ training your heart, preparing you for heaven so that you know how to live in the kingdom. And he tells us this. And uh, at the very end, go, uh, go back to the text real quick. In verse 37, we're going to hop down for just a moment. He says, Jesus says to him, um, go, you go and do likewise, do likewise, sorry. And, and that is a continuous present action in the original language. In other words, go and keep on doing it. It isn't a one-time event. It is a lifestyle. That's where that whole thought of it's a lifestyle. Go and keep doing it. It's a continuous process. And here's the second fill in the blank. Love isn't just warm and fuzzy. Love costs. Samaritan bound up his wounds. I don't know if you're squeamish about blood, but this guy had to get in there and you know, and I'm, I'm taking this parable and kind of adding to it, you know, speculating a little bit. But what we do know is that he was going to make this man as comfortable as possible, even if it was uncomfortable for him. He probably had to tear garments to bind up his wounds. He used his medicine and his oil uh, or his, his wine as an antiseptic. What does he do? He puts him on his own donkey or his own animal. And we think, okay, well, that's not that hard. You know, he put him on the, 
on the animal and then you know he walked alongside the animal at least that's the way i visioned it when i was a little kid until i started figuring out if this guy was a traveler he probably had about a 40 50 80 pound pack on the back of his donkey and when he put the man on the donkey he had to then carry the burden did you catch that he had to carry the burden just like it tells us later on paul says hey man you are to carry one another's burdens and it's just well oh man took him to a safe place he spent his own money didn't wait on somebody else committed to the future to helping him and bottom line is just love costs sometimes sometimes it's your treasure you know your money sometimes it, it costs your time it costs your talents because love is more than an emotional feeling love is an action and it's a lifestyle, and it's not always warm and fuzzy. In fact, sometimes love looks like correction, or reproof, or rebuke, or training, or teaching. And because your goal is to present every man and woman before Christ. I don't know if you've ever felt that responsibility that we're in this together, and we're to present every man before Christ in the best light they can. So it's really an investment, isn't it, into the life of another human being with no promise of return, um, at least to yourself. And so we've heard it, agape love, doing what's in the best pers- uh, interest in the person, in the best interest of the other person. So number three is this. How much you love God shows up in how much you love people. How much you love God shows up in how much you love people. And the two commandments are linked, the vertical and and the horizontal. They are definitely linked. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything. So how do you love God? Do you show up to church, read your Bible, say a prayer? Is that really how he's asked us to show us his love towards him? I love, uh, First John is sometimes a little weird. Could you admit that? It's just sometimes a little weird. He kind of seems like he rambles, but maybe he, he, the Holy Spirit knows how many times we have to hear the same message that God is love and we are to love one another. We are to love one another. But he says this, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. Just flat out liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, This is just straightforward teaching, isn't it? Just straightforward teaching. Simplistic, but tough. You know, it's tough to love the unlovely. It's tough to love our enemies. God's not telling us that it's not tough, but we are to love But when you are loving others, that's the way you're loving God. And you love without strings. You love without conditions. You don't love, well, you should love with abandonment. Let me put it that way. So here here are 12 things. Some of them are repeated. There is no fill in the blank. I'm just going to say them and, and do now just a little bit of preaching since I've done mostly teaching so far. Love means healing broken relationships that's what love means it means healing broken relationships 
And sometimes that's messy. As far as it is up to you, as Romans says, live at peace with all men. As far as it's up to you, you could have a stinky coworker, amen? And But you are to still be loving towards them. And if you find them on the side of the road hurt, you know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. Even though the flesh says, I don't want to help them, you know what you're going to do. You're going to stop and pull over. And the, and the, the person that cussed you out, you know, some time ago, and they're in trouble. I know what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to love that person, not with warm, fuzzy feelings, but you're going to do what is in the right and the best interest of that other person because you're about healing broken relationships. You're also about doing the right thing when nobody's looking. That's what love is, doing the right thing when no one's looking. And that means always telling the truth. That means always doing the right thing and knowing that God is being pleased with that. That's what love looks like. Because when you start even, there was a, at men's group, one of them, there was a passage in, in Lamentations, right, Chris? About even having a thought in your brain, you should dismiss. Otherwise, it says a little birdie's going to come and then broadcast it to the world. And so even in our brains, we are to be loving, that means taking that thought captive and dismissing it and make it bow to the, to the Christ that lives inside you. That's power. That's just in, incredible. So it means doing right when nobody's around. Even in here, you're doing right because it's the loving thing to do. And I said already, love takes time, energy, and effort. And love means being concerned about another person's well-being, even if they've wronged you. It also means that if your world, if your love is empty, it's probably worldly. And if your love is godly, it's probably powerful. Being able to forgive the unforgivable. We all have estranged relationships. Hey, amen to that, because you do. How do you treat the person who is estranged from you? Do you still care for them? Do you still love them? Do you still want to do right to them and by them? And love, <clears throat> love risks being hurt. There is no promise in Scripture that you are going to love your neighbor and in 30 minutes, or in today's TV time, 22 minutes have a pleasant outcome, right? You may go to your grave still hurting and stinging over something someone did to you that you were loving to. But that's just Jesus all in you. Jesus went to the cross while we were still yet enemies. And so, love risks being hurt. R love also means being flexible, putting your agenda aside and, and being present in the moment. How many of you live in the, in the moment? Okay, we have three people, I'm not included. You know, I'm thinking about yesterday, I'm thinking about tomorrow, and sometimes because I miss living in the present, I miss loving people. And that's something that I'm working on. I don't want to be so focused on that or that, but I want to be in the presence and see what God's doing right here and asking me who to love, who to love. And that means I have to be flexible and be willing to change plans and not be so brittle. Do we have any people in here that are brittle? Don't raise your hand, but you know who you are. You're not very flexible. Jesus wants to come in and soften that heart with his oil and that wine. 
and let you be flexible and, and to really live in the moment and be able to love the people that are around you that are desperately in need of it. And love is demonstrated in actions. Love is simple and practical. It doesn't have to be complicated. Love means following up. Not a one-time shot. It's a way of life. Love repairs and fixes and reconciles in spite of differences. The last one is that love, love has no loopholes. Don't be looking for the exit. Be looking, don't be looking for the loophole. And as tough as it is, we're to love. But you know what happens when we start loving? Man, the peace of Jesus comes in. And he gives us the strength to love the unlovely. You're, you know, we've said this before. You're an EGR, extra grace required to somebody in, in your life, right? And there's an EGR in your life. And God has shown you who that EGR is. And yet you dig down deep and you say, Jesus, give me the grace not to say bad things about them, about to say negative things to others about them, let me just give grace. And the word grace means gift. You are giving them a gift. And that gift is not earned. It's not deserved. It is a gift. And you are a gift giver. And when we start being the gift giver, it's amazing what happens, the transformation that happens in our life. And I don't know what happened to this lawyer. Do you ever speculate about what happens to people you meet in Scripture? I do. I, I wonder if this guy grew up or if he didn't grow up. But I know you. You're going to take this message to heart. And this week, you're going to look for people to love where they're at and to see with eyes that are different than last week. And you're going to be able to give a gift to somebody with your words. Maybe a word of encouragement. It will be a word of truth. But our world is desperate for Jesus. It is just desperate. And you, being the loving person that you are, will go out and change your little sphere of influence this week, allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way you love people. Isn't that exciting? You're going to have an adventure this week. I know you will. You're going to have an adventure of either on the telephone or in the store or maybe with someone you live with, or maybe a long-lost relative that's going to pop up into your life, and you're going to have that opportunity, and you're going to remember this moment, I am to love them. I am to love them, even if they've hurt you in the past. They've been your enemy in the past. You're going to have an opportunity to love them. Now, again, it's not warm and fuzzy. may not be warm and fuzzy, but it's going to be intentional good will because your compassion has been moved because Jesus lives inside of you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the adventure that we are on. Man, you are going to show us this week how to love. We've prayed about it. We've asked for it. And now you're going to be good to show us because you want us to be like you. Father, there are times, Lord, where we want to be the sons of Bojernus. We want to call down fire from heaven to those people that have slighted us. And you have told us again and again and again that we are to love. The whole world will know that you are real if we have love for one another. 
So we don't ask for more love because you've already given it to us, but we ask for opportunity this week to show that love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.